like Everett was saying a few minutes ago, if you guys haven't had the chance to go to Encounter, you definitely should take the opportunity. It uh, changed my life last year. Our scripture today is going to be Romans chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there, or you can look up on the screen, and be verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has, not been, poured, has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will, a per, will, a die, will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everyone. My name is Scott Irwin, and I'm one of the pastors here and thankful to be up here preaching today. I want to tell you a story about a moment I had with my family probably 12 years ago. Um, our kids were little, I think eight, six, and four, and we were kind of in the season of life. Parents, you might know this or remember this, uh, when every time we sit down, someone was fighting over what color plate or cup or what fork they got or they didn't get to sit in the right seat. And I remember uh, those times, I remember sitting and just like dreaming of the day when we could just sit and eat in, in peace, you know, and not in chaos and complaining. And then... Um, I got what I wished because 12 years later, my wife and I had a, a moment a couple weeks ago where our oldest daughter was um, at her house working to try to get something squared away with the electric company. Our, younger, our middle daughter was skiing in Colorado and our youngest son had just gotten his license and drove away for the first time. You remember that moment? And so my wife and I are in our house alone. It's quiet. That's for sure. Um, but wow, it's like, wow, things have changed. I would love to have the chaos at dinner time again. But at the moment, I didn't enjoy it. So parents enjoy it, even though someone told me to do that. I didn't do it, but, you know, I'll tell you to do the same. Um, enjoy it, because it goes quick. So we're, we're sitting at dinner, and I don't remember what was made. I, I know my wife made it. Um, I do remember my son saying something to the effect of, I don't want this. I don't want to eat this. And I, uh, I, you know, in a moment of weakness, I entertained the objection. And I said, well, what would you want? And he thought about it and he said, candy. I want candy for dinner. And I said, no, I'm not giving you candy for dinner. And he fired back quickly, well, well why not? And I said, because I love you, I'm not giving you candy. He said, well, stop loving me and give me some candy. <laughs> I think about that moment a lot. 
Um, kids have an ability to articulate um, with such accuracy and purity things that we think and things that we experience as adults. I, I've been there. I know what it's like to want what you want and, and not really care about who's telling you no. I know there was nothing I could do to, to reason with him in that moment, right? Have you ever tried to reason with a, a four-year-old about the, the effects of sugar on your body? It just doesn't go well. They look right through you, and they look to the wall behind you, and they're just like, I still want candy, you know? Nothing works. So you just say no, and then they, don't, then they feel, then they're upset, right? They don't get what they want. But in that moment, I'm demonstrating my love for him. I'm loving him. But he doesn't feel loved in that moment. Have you, ever, have you ever been loved by someone and it not feel good? It's kind of a weird thing. The older you get, the more you, rec- you can recognize, okay, I don't, I don't like this, but I know, I know I need this. I know this is good, right? There's that, that, that moment in maturity where you're able to recognize those things. I wonder what stops us from feeling God's love for us. Last week, Jim talked about the fact that God loves, and that's a big deal. We'll talk about that here in a second. But I, this morning, I wonder, I wonder if you have felt it recently, if you know it personally. I believe we should. I, I'm not going to try and defend that I think we should feel God's love. I know as Christians, we say things like, Love isn't a feeling, it's a choice. And we say those things, and I know what we mean by that, but I think we should feel it sometimes too. If someone said to me, yeah, I know God loves me, and if I asked them, well, do you ever feel his love? And they said no, I would say, well, let's, let's talk about that. I'm curious. I think that's a sign maybe. I don't know. I think we should feel God's love for us. How does, what does that feel like for you? How do you know? How do you, how do you feel God's love? Most of us in this room are not shocked um, when we hear that God loves us. We've, most of us have heard that before. But if you've ever questioned God's love, or maybe gone to great, um, gone great long stretches without feeling his love personally, or struggled to know how to love God and love others well, I, I hope to make sense of that this morning. Because I believe there are some critical truths that are are in a specific order that we need to understand about God's love, about what biblical love is. And I I think these, these three steps, I'll call them, will help us, especially if we ever struggle to know it or to feel it or to do it. And I think, it, I think it might mean that maybe we've bypassed or, or missed one of these steps in this process. And I also think these three steps really give kind of a framework to what our study, this, this seven-week series, is about. And so here's the three things, okay? I'm going to give you all three at the beginning, okay? This is maybe a preaching no-no because you might just leave. Uh, but don't leave because I'm going to flesh them out. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the second one, but... I'm going to, walk, I'm going to talk, give you all of them just so you can kind of have them in your mind. Here's, here's the three. First is to let God define love. To let God be the one to define it. The second move is 
to let Christ's death define God's love for you. And the third is to, to then let God's love compel you to love God and others. I use the word steps, um, but don't think formula. They're really like moves that we make when we understand who God is and, and what he's done and who we are and, and how we should live. The word let is there is, is a word to describe recognizing that something is true, that it's a reality that can't be ignored and that we must choose to submit to. Jim talked about this last week and the, the, in the series he's asking us to, to with humility and submission approach this subject of, of love. And so last week Jim did a phenomenal job helping us see the first one. That we are to let God define love. If you weren't here, I'll give you a recap but you should go listen to it. Jim reminded us that love doesn't begin with us. It doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. That his love can't be controlled or manipulated. It can't be increased or decreased. That you can't make him love you more and you can't make him love you less. That that God loves us because he's a loving God, because he wants to, and because he always wants to. It's not based on anything we do or don't do. 1 John 4 says God is love. In other words, God doesn't do loving things. He acts, and then we know what love is. His actions define it. Verse 19 says we love because he first loved us. So the order is important. Love flows from him. It begins with him. Love has this way of kind of returning to the one who started it. And when, it, when love begins with us and, it's, it, it, and we define it, then it somehow becomes about us. But when love begins with God and he gets to define it, then we receive all the blessing for it and in response return that love back to him. He, we love because he first loved us. But how? How did he love us? Let Christ's death define God's love for you. 1 John 4.10 says, Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice of our sins. And then we come to Romans 5. This great text, I don't know if you had a chance to turn there, but if you, if you want to turn there, I want to point out some things that you might want to look and see. It, it's a, this text is a, one that we could spend weeks really unpacking. There is a mountain of truth here. I want to just point out two things. I want to highlight two things that are on display that are in vast contrast to each other. So uh, what I'm arguing is that Paul is highlighting two things that are in vast contrast to each other for a reason. So I want to talk about that. The first one is the gift. What's the gift? What's Jesus? Notice what it says that what we receive in Christ. We have peace with God, continuous grace before God. We have hope in God. And all of this is pointing to, this, to his poured out and proven love for us by sending Jesus to die in our place for our sins. This gift is incredible. Um, if, you, if you 
read Romans 1 through 5 and you get to this point, um, you see how monumental this is. So, what about the second part? The recipients of this gift. Those who receive this gift, that's you and I. This is what it, do you notice what it says about us? These might be hard to swallow, might be hard to identify with. It says we're helpless, godless, sinners, and enemies. Why would, why would Paul say that about us? What, what Paul's doing, he's helping us see the gift given compared to those who receive it at the point it's given is a vast difference. That the ones who receive it have really nothing to offer. And that's the point. And that's the good news. Because you and I didn't do anything to get it, so that means we don't have to do anything to keep it. It's, it's love is that. It is, when I say don't do anything, you, you recognize that when we re- understand God's love, we naturally respond in obedience and faith, and we'll talk about that. But it's, this is a giant thing coming at us, and we have nothing to offer it. Scripture, if you read through the Bible, it describes God as, as giving and blessing and promising. And then it says that God is faithful, and he's patient, and he's forgiving, and he's trustworthy, and he's merciful, and he's kind, and he's gracious, and he pursues his people to the end. And sometimes he hands his people over to what they want just so they can be reminded that they don't need that, they need him. And when it talks about us, it it refers to us as taking, not giving like God, but taking and using for our own purposes. Romans 1, I think, is probably the best description of this for us. Romans 1 captures all of us. Even the sweetest person you know, when I think about the sweetest person I know, I think about my grandma, my mom's mom, who literally is the sweetest person I've ever known. And this is true of her as well. It says that, that naturally, on our own, we worship created things, not the creator. That naturally, on our own, we, we want to take credit for things that only God deserves. That naturally, on our own, that we don't live to glorify God, we, we live to glorify ourselves or something in this world. But, but with Christ, those things can change. So listen to what John Barclay, he's a scholar, a New Testament scholar, described in, describing this section in, in Romans 5. He says, The gift is neither a trivial token tossed to whomever it, it might reach, nor a costly gift targeted at the highly deserving. In other words, it's not like Christ died and said, hey, by the way, I died for you. Whoever wants it, it's yours. No? And it's not that he purposely targeted those special people that are just really, really awesome and deserving of this. It's neither of those. It is the costliest gift given with the deepest sentiment and the highest commitment to those who, at the time of its giving, had nothing to render them fitting recipients. Meaning we had nothing to offer this 
highest, costliest, deepest gift. And that means that he loved us then. He loved us in that moment. Whenever it was, for those of us who accepted Christ, it was that moment that we accepted him and we had nothing to give him. We were helpless, we were godless, we were sinners, and we were enemies of God in his ways. That's what the Bible describes. And yet, this gift was given. Verse eight, God proved his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you remember nothing else, remember that verse. That's the verse, by the way. That's the verse, I could have, I thought about just reading that verse slowly for 27 minutes. It might have been awkward. But that's the verse. It's that moment when you had nothing to offer. He loved you then. And some of you know that. Maybe you struggle to know if he loves you now, and the truth is he does. He loves you now. In verse 9, it talks about now, and it talks about our righteousness now in Christ, that we are righteous, that those who are in Christ are made righteous now. In verse 11, it talks about our reconciliation that we have with him. That's a relationship term. So now, not only does he see us as righteous in Christ, but we've been reconciled to him, so now we have a relationship with him that we can grow and, and know and love him. Pretty amazing. Hebrews 7.25 is a verse that's recently um, been something I think about often. When I, whenever I talk about Christ's love for me, I, I tend to reference it as past tense. I, I, I sometimes have a hard time seeing it now. But l- listen to this verse. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, Jesus. And since he lives to intercede with them, since he always lives to intercede for them, he is, this is saying that Jesus is interceding for us constantly. He, he loves us now. He's interceding for us now. It's not just a past thing. It's a present thing. But it's not just a present thing, it's also a future thing. He will love you then. And verse Verse 9, I believe it says, it says he'll, he'll love us and protect us and save us from this wrath to come. But, but it's not just a love that, that, that helps us in, at the end. It, uh, it's also a love that helps us in this future moment when you sin, and you will. This moment when you choose to chase after something in the world, when you choose to do something you know you shouldn't or, or not do something you know you should. The Bible says he loves you then. Uh, 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So that means in the future, when you sin, when you do that unrighteous act, you have the righteous one advocating for you. That's... That's huge. You might think, yes, you've known God's love, you feel God's love, but, but in that moment, sometimes it's hard to know. But really? Because you've told him you'll never do it again. And then guess what? You find yourself and you did it again. He loved you then. Jim said last week that God can't be surprised or disappointed. It would have to mean that he doesn't know the future 
This, this verse is pointing to that future moment in which you have Jesus, the righteous one, advocating for you. That's huge. So what keeps us then? If these things are true, what keeps us from feeling God's love for us? Randy Garris, um, who's a professor at Ozark, he was a pastor for 35 plus years, um, and now he's a chaplain and a professor at Ozark. He has this series, and you can actually watch it on YouTube, uh, but the series that Ozark put out, and it's this particular one, seven or eight sessions, and it's on emotional maturity. And kind of what he's after is, he's, he's tackling this idea of spending all this time in church he's, he's had, and all this time with believers, and even himself, and he's, he's trying to understand how is it that you can know all these things about Jesus and know all these things about God and know his love for you, but then the way we act towards the people we love or the way we respond emotionally to things, to situations, how is it that it seems like sometimes those things are disconnected? And so he's after this, trying to understand it, trying to talk through it. And in one of his sessions, he talks about this thing, and he calls it the story beneath the story. And I thought this was really helpful. And what he said was he drew like this concentric circles. And, and he said, you know, a person can accept Christ and the gospel can start on this outer circle and move towards the middle. And in the very center circle, that's, that's you. That's what you believe at your core. That's what motivates you. That's how you see life. It's, it's that thing, whatever that is, it's, that's you. And he says the gospel can move move these outer rings, it can move all the way, but if it doesn't come into that center circle, then most likely there's something else that's interpreting the gospel, that's, that's it's lenses by which you see and respond to life and the people around you. And it's a story, maybe a story you tell yourself, maybe it's based on something you went through, maybe it's a promise you made to yourself you didn't know, I mean, there's, there's, what is it that's describing, that's, that's interpreting the things that you See, I had a friend um, that I worked with. He was a coworker. He was probably in his early to mid 40s. This is when I was in college. I worked at Sears Automotive. So he was a fellow sales person with me on the floor. And we talked about a lot of things. I could tell that he was from a rough background. And um, we talked about church. He knew why I was, I was at Ozark. I was at a Bible college. He knew what I was doing. And so I've, I invited him to church. I remember the first time I invited him to church, he said, the day I walk into church is the day it burns down. Which, he laughed and then I laughed nervously because I wasn't quite sure what he meant by that. Um, but, But as we talked, the more I realized what he meant by that was, I've done way too much. God would never forgive me. Like the, 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 It'll just blow up. If I walk into church, it'll, oh, I will ruin everything. That's, that's what he's saying. And I think he meant it. I think he believed that. God has a sense of humor because I, the, finally he agreed to go to church with us, and it was in the winter, and it was just back before ch- churches had websites. So there was an ice storm and, and, and snow on a Saturday, and we didn't know if they were going to cancel it. We just thought, maybe this is old school me, but we just thought, we'll just go pick him up and drive over there and see. And we pick him up, we pull into the parking lot and there's somebody there telling us church is canceled because of the ice. He thought that was so funny. He's like, God didn't burn it down, he iced it down, right? 
So we spent the whole rest of the ride home trying to just remind him, that's not what happened. God's not upset with you. This is just, you know. And he eventually came back to church with us, and he, he went a couple times, and, and he was kind and gracious, but it, he wouldn't let it. He wouldn't let it come in. Or maybe um, you're familiar with something like this. This is a story that maybe all of us have felt at some point, but um, Tim Keller tells a story of meeting with a 17-year-old girl and, his, and her parents. She, she came in, they brought her in because she was struggling with a lot of things and depression and anxiety and um, just really having a difficult time in school. And the more they talked about it, the more they realized that it was directly connected to some things that her friends had done that were hurtful and a, a boy that had broken up with her that doesn't like her anymore. And so as that was coming out, Tim was getting excited because he had just a couple days ago preached a sermon about how, how we need to let the gospel transform our identity. And it'll free us from these things that have a grip on us and these things that you know, hold us down and that aren't true of us and that we don't have to question God's love for us because of what Christ has done. And she's like, he's like, so were you there on Sunday? Yeah. Did you hear what I said about the identity? And like, was that helpful? She's like, no, what does that have to do with my friends? What does that have to do with this boy who doesn't like me? She, she couldn't let, she hadn't let that gospel story come all the way in. There was still something else that was motivating and, and driving her emotions and her decisions and her thinking for some of us, this has been me before. We approach Christianity like, like, like it's an intellectual endeavor. We, we take the intellectual approach. And maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you kind of look at this as like some new you know, philosophical idea or some new theological truth to, to debate or something like that. But it's not a reality that, that like transforms or compels you it's just, it's just something to grow in knowledge. I've been there. Um, or maybe, maybe this one's you, this one's me most of the time, a lot of the time. You're too comfortable. You're not living by faith. Comfort has a way of insulating and numbing God's love for us. It's, it's really when we are recognize our need for him and our dependence upon him that we can all of a sudden sense his presence and activity in our life and we feel his love for us. If, if you and I can't think of something in our life that we are trusting God with, like if he doesn't come through, it won't happen. If we can't think of something that we're trusting God to do, there's a pretty good chance we're not trusting God with our life. And when we're not trusting God with our life, we, it's really easy to not feel his love. Or maybe you've been through something in the past, something that um, you were never meant to go through. People in your life that were supposed to love you and didn't. And so that's easy to project that on a God who does love you. Whatever it is, I, I want to ask what it would take 
to allow the gospel story, to allow Christ's death be the definition of God's love for you and to allow that to move to the center of who you are. There's a guy in early church history. Um, he was an enemy of the church. He, in fact, he, he was a zealous man and he was an educated man and he thought what he was doing was right and so he was trying to stop Christians from doing what they were doing, spreading this truth, this gospel. And he had a, a moment, pretty significant moment, where he came to Christ, and then everything changed for him. He really allowed this, this gospel story to come and penetrate all the way down in, and everything changed. And this is what he said, and you've heard these words before, but he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And the death I live, I, the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul personalized the death of Christ as God's definition of love for him. Paul, Paul felt God's love for him and Paul was compelled to go love God and others. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. 1 John 3.16 says this, This is how we, we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Right there, what this is saying is like this, when, when someone has let God define love, and then they've, they've let the, the cross of Christ, they've let Christ's death define God's love for them, then there's a natural response of obedience and worship to want to go love God and love others. It flows from this. If you found yourself um, found it difficult or maybe even confusing to love God. If, if people in your life um, are complicated and hard to love or if you're not sure how to love people without offending them anymore, these next five weeks, we're gonna flesh out what it means to respond, to be compelled by God's love to love him and to love others. Come this next five weeks as we talk through that. But I want to I talk to the men. Last week, Randy got to get up and, and invite women to join a woven group and to get connected and to grow this year. This, I want to I speak to men. What if 2023 was a year you took new steps or bold steps or continued taking steps of responding to God? What if you moved into your relationships and responsibilities with no controlling fear of how others might respond or what life may throw at you, but simply because you are compelled by God's love for you to love him and to love others with the love you've received from him? This year we've got lots of things going on for men to connect in. The encounter is one of them. If you haven't been, I ask you, beg you to prayerfully consider. Go talk to one of the guys in the lobby. 
This is, that, this is what that whole weekend is about, is getting away and doing this very thing. Thinking about that, what does it mean to, to grow in our relationship with God? What, what hinders that relationship? What does freedom look like? What, how do we respond to life and to others with this love that we've received with him, from him? We also have a men's connection, first Saturday of every month. Every Saturday, first Saturday of every month, we gather in the gym. Somebody from our church shares what God's doing in their life. And then we, we spend 30 minutes or so chatting it up at tables, talking about what this looks like in our life, challenging and encouraging each other. Duck Blind Ministry meets monthly to do things that you love with people who love the same thing. Like whatever it is. I want to challenge you men to step up in this, in this next year. Let's do this together. Let's do 2023 together. As we head into a time of communion, this, what we're about to do is an act of response to what God has done. But God's love for us is, is, is more, just more. It's more than a profound idea. It's more than we can comprehend. It's more than something to feel or experience. Eternity isn't enough time to experience its depths. It's more than something to express to others because we simply won't be able to do it perfectly or entirely. And it's more than something that just leads us to worship, which is about what we're getting ready to do. It's what we're doing when we celebrate this, this meal. We're celebrating what Christ's body broken for us, signifying his death eradicating uh, or sin eradicating death almost got that backwards so take this bread that represents his body broken for us and we take this juice that signifies his life giving resurrection that you can have life in his name take and drink